you would take your copy of God's Word, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Colossians, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, as we continue in this series entitled Christ the Sinner. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. I wonder if there's a consistent source of anxiety in your life. Not high level, not imminent danger by any stretch of the imagination, but just things that you consistently do that you're consistently uncomfortable doing. Uh, For some of you, it might be in the car and you might be in the passenger seat and you have your 16-year-old granddaughter who you're teaching to drive and to navigate the traffic of 280 And every weekend that you take her on that excursion, it provides you with a little bit of opportunity to reacquaint yourself with God in prayer as you are there. Uh, For some of you, you just don't like heights. Uh, You don't want to be going to the top of the Empire State Building. You don't want to get in the elevator that takes you up there really quickly. When you get to a hotel and they tell you you have a wonderful view, it's on the 37th floor, your heart sinks a little bit, and there are times where you request to go lower because you don't want to be in the elevator. You can do it, and you have done it, and you probably will, but it's not your preference. For me, without a shadow of a doubt, it's being in an airplane at 35,000 feet. And when we hit turbulence, I pray the plane up in the air. I keep it up through my prayer life. I do not and have never felt really comfortable. I continue to fly. Uh, Mr. T, do you remember Mr. T? They had to tranquilize him to get him on a plane. That's not what happens with me. I fly internationally, but I have a hard time relaxing. I have a hard time sitting in the seat. I don't like turbulence. Now, some of it was because of an ignorant view I had of what the pilots thought about turbulence. I remember as a teenager getting in the plane and every time we would hit an air pocket, every time we would go through a a bumpy section, I had the impression in my mind that the pilots were nervous by what I was nervous about. So if I was nervous, surely they were nervous. So I thought that when we were going through turbulence, that the pilots were uh, saying things like mayday, mayday, and there were red flashing lights in the cockpit. And I had this image of the pilot undoing his tie and having to really bear down on it to keep us in the air. Now that was until one of our church members was a pilot, and I talked to him a little bit about my fears of flying. I just said, you know, every time we go through these bumpy sections, I'm just nervous. And he said, David, there's, there's nothing that you have to worry about in the air. That, that in actuality, the most dangerous part of flying is driving to the airport or driving home from the airport. Now, I will say, since he told me that, now I'm nervous about driving to the airport. <laughs> But I need, I need someone else to help me with that. But, so he said, you know, when, when we're bobbing and weaving at 33,000 feet, do you know what I'm doing in the cockpit? I'm talking about where I'm going to eat dinner. It, it's not even a blimp on my radar. There is nothing about what's going on there. As long as you're in your seat, when I've got that fasten seatbelt sign, there's nothing that's going to happen to that plane that I don't have complete control over. My fear is oftentimes the fear of the unknown. 
You know, if I was with that pilot in that cockpit, I think I'd be really comfortable. But I'm always way in the back, can't see the front, and it's the unknown that makes me nervous. You know, sometimes in life, you feel as if life is flying very quickly through the air. And at times, you see some bumpy parts that you're going to have to bear down and go through. But there are other times where you hit an air pocket and you, and you tend to drop really quickly and it takes your stomach away. The circumstances of life seem, seem very turbulent. But I'm here to remind you from God's word this morning that Christ is our pilot who will navigate even the most turbulent of rides. And he always has a grand destination in your mind for your good and for his glory that in the midst of insecure times in your life, in our nation, in our world, Christ is our sole source of security. Colossians chapter 1 reminds us of Jesus as our security when Paul, writing to the church there in Colossae, would say in chapter 1, starting in verse 15, that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of of his cross. We're walking through the book of Colossians. We've been reminded in the previous 14 verses that Jesus is our salvation, that Jesus is our hope. And this morning, in these verses here, I want you to be reminded from God's word that Jesus is our sole source of security. In this passage, we discover three wonderful truths here from Paul's words. The first truth that I want you to see in your copy of God's word is that in Jesus, we encounter the ruler of the universe. Verse 15 and verse 19 ground us. Again, look in your Bible here. It says that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. You can underline image. You can underline firstborn. We need to explore what those words mean here. Then you go to verse 19, and it completes this thought. For in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. What is Paul saying? Well, he's saying that in Jesus, you encounter the ruler of the universe. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That word in the original language of the New Testament is a word that we get that word icon from. He's a visual representation of. God the Father is invisible. He is spirit. But in Jesus, revealed to us in his word, the character of God, his love, his grace, his kindness, his uh, uh, inscrutability that he has, his omniscience, his omnipotence, all of these we discover in Jesus, it reveals to us the image of God. It reveals who God the Father is. This is what this passage is telling us here. In John chapter 14, verse 9, it says, Jesus said that anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So if you see Jesus, you see the Father. 
Now, we might not be able to visually apprehend and see, but when we see Jesus revealed to us in Scripture, we see the Father's attributes on display. That second phrase of verse 15 says, the firstborn over all creation. And what does this mean here? Well, what we discover is, is what it doesn't mean. It's interesting. When I was a young Christian, and still do this, now there are parts of my Bible that I just put question marks off in the margins because I don't know exactly what it means. And when I was a young Christian walking through Colossians, I'm sure that I question marked in the margin firstborn because this is a verse that when it's taken out of its context, it becomes a pretext for ultimately what the church has viewed as heresy for almost 2,000 years. Fourth century, there was a man by the name of Arius looking at this passage here that said, oh, I know exactly what Paul is saying. He's the firstborn. So that means that there was a time where God the Father was all by himself and Jesus was created later. The church said, no, that's not orthodox. That's not what the Bible teaches. No, that we discover in John chapter 1 that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God, the Word being Jesus, that there's never been a time where God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are not dwelled in community, that God is three in one, one in three. He is eternal Father, eternally Son, eternally Spirit. No, Arius, you must be wrong. Even today in the 21st century, there are religious groups that look at this passage, take it out of context, and they create a pretext to make the Father here and Jesus here. But what we discover again in our passage here in verse 19, in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So the firstborn isn't about birth order as much as it's about position and privilege in the Jewish family, the firstborn received the inheritance. And so Jesus has the right to claim everything that the Father possesses. So all the Father is revealed to us in Jesus Christ here. Now what you understand in this passage here is that verse 18 means not only is he the ruler of the universe, but he is the ruler not only of creation, but also of the church. That if he has the right over the universe, then he has the right of the church. So there's no pastor who is the CEO. There's no family group that runs a church. Ultimately, what we discover from Scripture is, is that Jesus Christ is the boss. Jesus Christ is the ruler. Jesus Christ is the CEO. He is the head of the church. Any pastor is an under-shepherd. We all serve at his call, his indwelling, and at his privilege. This is where our security lies. And understanding that Jesus is the ruler of the universe. But secondly, in this passage, we discover that in Jesus, you encounter the creator of the universe. Again, look at your Bible. In verse 16, we discover Paul saying, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. When I was a young boy, maybe four, three, five, I don't know, earliest memories I have of my mother reading to me God's Word, we had this picture Bible. And this picture Bible is something maybe many of you are familiar with. It had a uh, Genesis 1. There was a Charlton Heston, Ten Commandments, Moses looking, God stepping out of the clouds all by himself. 
You go to the Sistine Chapel, you'll see Michelangelo's creation there before you, and you see God the Father reaching his hand toward Adam and Eve to create, and he's all by himself. Creation portrayed, oftentimes portrays the Father as solitary, alone, by himself, and we have this false understanding that God the Father was there by himself, and he got lonely, so he had to create Jesus, and then the Spirit, and then us, but that's not what Scripture teaches, is at the very outset of creation, that Jesus was a part of creation. That Jesus is the creator of the universe. That the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit have always been in this divine relationship. They've always been in this relationship. So anything the Father was doing, Jesus is there doing it with him. Now this is what's amazing about this. Is that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit were 100% content in themselves. But Jesus comes to us as the creator with the Father and he enters into his creation so he would redeem all who would trust in him. What analogy do you have for that? What way do you analogize what what is beyond our comprehension here? That the creator becomes a part of his creation to redeem all of creation who would trust him. It, it is the painter who paints the great valley and the great mountains. And then that painter, she enters into the canvas and she summits her own mountain. It, it is the, the writer who has his life work before him and he becomes the protagonist of it. He becomes the main character, the lead, the culmination of the story. C.S. Lewis and mere Christianity would be fumbling for analogies that would try to help us comprehend what Jesus does as the creator who enters into the creation. And he has this man looking down at this ant colony that has been stepped on and the ants are scattering. And he thinks of the man who becomes an ant to redeem the colony. It, It is beyond our analogy. But what the scripture tells us very clearly here is that Jesus does this as the creator who enters in creation. Why? Looking again in Paul's words here, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So the reason that Jesus as creator comes into the creation is to redeem all who would trust in him as Savior and as Lord. So true security is found when you understand that in Jesus, you encounter the creator of the universe. In Jesus, you encounter the ruler of the universe. But finally this morning, I want you to discover from Paul's words that in Jesus, you encounter the sustainer of the universe. This is profound for us to understand because we discover in verse 17 something that we often don't reflect upon. And what Paul tells us in verse 17 is that Jesus is before all things, But in him, all things hold together. All things hold together. One of the earliest threats to Christianity in the American colonies was the threat of what was called deism. Deism is something that we still see now, but it was very prevalent in the earlier colonial religious thought. Easy to to see an analogy of it. The idea is that God the Father is present at creation And he winds up everything at the beginning and he just lets it loose. Never to enter into it again. Never to intervene again. There are no miracles because God the Father does not intervene. There's no place for intervention there because he winds it up and he steps back. But notice what Paul is saying. 
That there is no deistic God that Paul understands. Jesus is here in this passage and he's holding all things together. In the original language of the New Testament, that word hold doesn't mean just held together in the past, but actually continually holds together. You can paraphrase this passage and end up saying that Jesus is the glue that keeps everything together. Think about that for a second. Why does our universe hold together? Why does the sun not spin out of orbit or the earth spin out of orbit and crash into the sun? Why does the moon not hit us? Because, again, Jesus holds all things together. But scientists have have been trying to to come up with a comprehensive understanding of, of why things hold together. Stephen Hawkins, a Cambridge physicist and really popular author in science literature, he said that the eventual goal of science is to provide a single theory that describes the cohesiveness of the whole universe. And so scientists uh, speculate that gravity and electromagnetism and weak force and strong force, that all of these elements are a part of that comprehensive understanding of why all things hold together. The reason the planets don't spin out of their orbits, or reason that atomic particles in this table right here don't collapse inwardly are because of these mechanisms. Now, I don't know much about weak force. I don't know much about strong force. I don't know much about electromagnetism. I did not learn that in seminary, but I can tell you this, what I learned when I was seven years old. It was a song that someone taught me that Jesus, he holds all things together because he's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. Do you remember the rest of that song? Not only does he have the whole world in his hands, but he's got you and me, brother, in his hands. He is the ruler, he is the creator, and he is the sustainer. And if he sustains all that is around us, then why are you taking from what he is holding and placing it in your grip and in your hands? You see, you're trying to do with your life what only he can do with your life. He is the sustainer. He is the designer. And what you are trying to do very well may be today trying to take on your shoulders what only he is powerful enough to sustain. Kent Hughes is a pastor outside of Chicago, College Church in Wheaton, and he tells a story of a printing press manufacturer in America that built a large printing press and it was bought in South America. They assembled it in South America, the local uh, workers there. They started it up and they could not get it to work right. They brought their brightest minds together and eventually they come to the place where they said, we have got to call the manufacturer and they've got to send someone here that can fix what we have bought. So they call the manufacturer, they get somebody on the plane, he gets there really quickly, steps off, he meets the South American officials of this corporation and they look at him with absolute dismay because he is a young, young man. And in that culture, there was something about uh, the, the older workers that were there that had given a lot of time and effort to try to fix this, that they were sort of offended that they would send this young whippersnapper that's still wet behind the ears to fix what they can't fix. So they immediately called and said, we, we've got to get somebody here who's been around the block. We've got to get some. You don't understand that we've got our best minds on this and it's not working. And what the American company called back and said, we sent you the designer. 
the creator, there's nothing about that that he doesn't understand. You see, there's a temptation in life for you to play the role of the fixer. A lot of people may be very well in this room fix things for a living. You go into boardrooms and you fix things. You go into communities and you fix things. But you sat down in a doctor's consulting room and she shared a diagnosis with you that you can't fix. But you're still trying to. There's a situation in your family where you've seen Christian values taken to the wayside and you see rubble of marriages that were once I do that are now I don't and you're trying to fix it. He is the ruler, he is the creator, and he is the sustainer. If he holds this universe in his hands, why are you trying to take life's problems into your hands. Oh, yes, we all have responsibility. Yes, we all have roles to play. But I'm here to tell you there's some of you in this room that have things that are beyond your capability, beyond your intellect, and it will only be when you submit to the designer of your marriage where God begins to restore that first love of your marriage. It's only when you submit to God's plan for your grandchildren where you find a peace in the steps that they're taking. It's only when you get to that place where you recognize no matter where this diagnosis takes me, no matter how turbulent the air will be as I travel through the destination, I ultimately know there is a pilot who has all of life in control even when I'm shaking in my seat. He's in control. Quit trying to take on your shoulders what you as the creation weren't designed to fix. Would today be the day that you submit before the ruler of the universe? Would you submit before the very sustainer and creator of the universe, recognizing in his hands is the only true source of security, no matter how turbulent your ride is? Let us pray. We recognize the temptation in our life to take upon us responsibilities that were never entrusted to us. I recognize that in this room, there very well may be those that are traveling through turbulent airspace of life. They don't exactly see the destination before them. They feel it's just bumpy and things seem out of control. Would today be the day that we renew our commitment to you as the pilot of our life? May we recognize anew and afresh that only you, Savior, can pilot me over life's tempestuous seas. When the unknown waves before us roll, may you be our hiding rock. Savior, Jesus, pilot 
us. It's in your name we pray. Amen and amen.